0: Father, I do pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word and minister to us as we need it from you this morning. In your compassion and mercy we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about when your enemies fall into your hands, into your power. When people do wrong, it lasts Sin can inflict deep wounds on those who are sinned against. Wounds that can be reopened again after many years. Sin can lay great burdens of guilt and shame on the sinner. Burdens which they may still carry after many years. Perhaps you know stories of this. People who are wounded by betrayal or abuse by injustice or neglect, by lies or violence. Uh, Perhaps you know people burdened by affairs they had, untruths they spoke, duties they ignored, money they stole, people they exploited, deeds they regret. When you feel sinned against, it's easy to fantasise about bad things happening to the sinner, Some swift and brutal justice falling upon their head, maybe at your hands or maybe just, you know, from on high. Can there be healing of the wounded? Can the burden of guilt be laid down? How much reconciliation is possible between sinner and sinned against? How can it happen? These are real and pressing questions for many people and perhaps for you. Today, I want to look at this story, the story of Joseph's guilty brothers falling into his power. And after we've looked at that story, I'll make a couple of reflections on reconciliation. So let's begin with the story, which is really the story of Joseph's guilty brothers falling into his power. And how does he treat them? Well, he treats them harshly. We have followed the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, as he has passed through many trials. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, these ten brothers who appear before him in this passage. He was falsely accused by his master's wife and thrown into jail where he languished forgotten for years but Joseph was unexpectedly remembered and by interpreting Pharaoh's dreams of the future has been raised to power and position. And This is where we meet him at the beginning of today's passage. Moreover, verse 44 says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Here he is in a good place, and seven good years follow, good for Egypt's harvests, and also good for Joseph. For as well as position, he has, he has a wife, Asenath, and he has two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. This is a man who's passed through a stage of life and is enjoying this new goodness. The second he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. He is grateful for the turnaround in his life. He doesn't forget God, does he? God has made me forget. God has made me fruitful. But he does seem to be embracing his life in Egypt and perhaps seeing his future as an Egyptian future. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. But Joseph won't be forgetting his father's house for too long. For when the famine coming after seven years of plenty, when that famine begins to bite, it bites in Canaan to the north of Egypt where his father's house live and they are out of grain and so we read in verse 5 of chapter 42 thus the sons of Israel the sons of Jacob were among the other people who came to buy grain for the famine had reached the land of Canaan now Joseph was governor over all the land and it was he who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him, with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. Now, at this moment, Joshua, uh, Joshua Joseph is brought face to face again with his father's house. He is reminded of all his hardships, and how will he react? How should he react? Should he say, My dear long lost brothers, how good it is to see you? Don't fear, all is forgiven. Or, You worthless scum, I'm Joseph, whom you kidnapped and sold. Now you'll pay. Guards, seize them. He does not exactly either of those things because he keeps his identity back. But what he does, does seem closer to the you worthless scum response, doesn't it? When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He said. Verse 9, he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. This is the very first step that is taken on a journey a journey that Joseph and his brothers are taking towards reconciliation on this journey Joseph has the upper hand he's in power he knows who's who the other brothers are there at sea they have no understanding of who they are dealing with what Joseph does will be hard to interpret For the brothers, certainly, but I think even for us as readers, because we're constantly asking ourselves, is this vengeful or is it reasonable? What is Joseph at? What's it all about? And we may keep asking that as we journey through the next couple of weeks with this process of reconciliation. It is a journey that will end in reconciliation. I'll give you that spoiler now, sorry, but um, we may have questions still as we go along the way. There's one other thing really to notice at this moment, that at this moment of reunion of Joseph and his brothers being brought face to face again, Joseph's old dream is fulfilled. At 17, many years before, before all his troubles, Joseph told his brothers when he was living at home with them, he told them a dream that he'd had, He said, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the fields when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And here are his brothers bowing down to him, seeking grain from him. And Joseph remembers this dream and recognises its fulfilment and this Well, this must put Joseph on notice that, well, God is here right in this moment. This is from God. And for Joseph, he should remember that as he acts in this moment of his power, God is there. God is watching. God is working Perhaps Joseph could simply have had his revenge and executed them. After all, they were foreigners. They'd wandered in from a far land and he was the governor of all Egypt and nobody perhaps would be too fussed about the fate of a few foreigners. He doesn't do that. He holds back from sheer vengeance and presses his accusation, you are spies. He knows this is false. He's made it up. He knows who they are. But he proposes to test them. Here is how you shall be tested. As Pharaoh lives, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Let one of you go and bring your brother while the rest of you remain in prison in order that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. And off to prison they all go. Three days later, Joseph has softened a little. Verse 18 On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are imprisoned. The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Thus your words will be verified. And you shall not die. And they agreed to do so. Again, we ask, what is Joseph at? Perhaps he fears that Benjamin, who was his full brother, also the son of uh, Jacob's wife Rachel, perhaps Joseph fears that Benjamin will be receiving the same kind of treatment that he had received from these ten, and being perhaps done away with even, and wanted to see. Benjamin face to face and alive. Perhaps he just wants these no good brothers of his to kind of sweat and suffer. Perhaps he's got something else in mind. As I say, we'll have to keep journeying and seeing how things turn up. But whatever Joseph has in mind, what he is doing is having a certain effect on his brothers, it's pricking their consciences. Earlier in the passage we read, this is at the beginning of chapter 42, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at one another? I've heard, he said, there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. Joseph's thinking, sorry, Jacob is thinking, why are you so indecisive? Why are you not acting? You know what to do, go to Egypt and buy grain. Why are they... Hesitating, why are they unsure? Why are they looking at one another? Perhaps it's because none of them really wanted to go to Egypt, because you know that was the land they had sent their brother Joseph off to in chains years ago, and it was a kind of a guilty thought that accompanied the name Egypt. Egypt for them, was a place where a dirty secret lurked. And so when they go there and it all goes disastrously wrong, they feel like their sin is being punished. They said to one another, Alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to wrong the boy? But you would not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And the guilt they carry, hidden in their guts, has risen up into their throat and it's a flame in them. When Joseph hears this, he weeps. This is the first of three times that Joseph weeps along this road. And uh, we can ask, why does he weep? What, does the te- what do the tears mean? Does he weep for his brothers? Does he weep for them out of love and compassion? And that's certainly possible. But he could be weeping for himself. For as their guilt has risen up in them to their consciousness, so it could be that Joseph's old wound has been reopened and he weeps again, perhaps over all the shock and betrayal and hardship he has suffered at the hands of these, these men now before him and because of them. Now, we're only able to kind of imagine the reason for the tears here and often I think the Old Testament narratives do work like this. They tell you what happened but they don't give you a direct insight into what was in the minds and the hearts of the players, the actors, the characters, the people. Sometimes we get clues in dialogue, but sometimes we have to think, what could this mean? And enter imaginatively into it. The tears, for whatever reason they are cried, they do not signal a change in Joseph's plan and intention. This is not Joseph letting his compassion change his idea of testing these brothers verse 24 he picked out simeon and had him bound before their eyes and the brothers will return to their father and the questions will be are they willing to leave simeon abandoned in egypt left behind to whatever might happen to him are they willing to tell their father another tale and betray another brother this, in a way, is the test. Or will they return with Benjamin to retrieve Simeon? And on that note, this week's episode comes to an end. And we will, it's to be continued next week. But how can we reflect on what we've heard? Here is a couple of things. Firstly, reconciliation is not nothing, it is hard. It involves a process. There are, of course, some things, many things that may be easy to forgive, easy to put behind you and get over, but significant sin with real consequence and pain is not easy to deal with. Joseph's testing of his brothers shows that he doesn't trust his brothers. They say, we are honest men, but he knows they were not honest men. And he intends to test if they will prove to be honest men now. For reconciliation involves rebuilding trust. And if you are in a process of reconciliation, or need to be, to the degree that you've been sinned against, recognise in yourself the importance of knowing that the other to whom you need to be reconciled, you need to find them trustworthy at some level. And if you are involved in a process of reconciliation or need to be, to the degree that you are the sinner, do your best to win the trust of the one you would be reconciled to. Reconciliation not only involves rebuilding trust, it also involves dealing with strong emotions. We stir up old griefs and pains that we have tried to forget and to file away. When we're reconciling, we are called to face our worst deeds, perhaps, our great failures, our shame. And we're called not to deny it or make excuses or minimise it, but instead to take responsibility and own the consequences, and that is painful. Look at the brothers. They said to one another, Alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. This moment of great honesty We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. At least they knew that they had done wrong. They know their deeds are black. It is anguish, though, to face it. And they did not know that Joseph understood them as they said this. He turned away upon hearing it and wept. It's anguish all round here. Strong emotions. But reconciliation requires the courage to pass through those fires of pain. Those fires of pain can be purifying and liberating and the way back to life. Reconciliation is not nothing, it is hard, it involves a process. The second uh, reflection I'll offer is that reconciliation is God's business. Jesus and his cross, his body given, his blood shed, which we remember in the Lord's Supper. These are for our reconciliation to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. For his part, God has done the work that we might have our sins forgiven; that He might forgive us and be reconciled to us. Our first task then is to be reconciled to God. Two Corinthians five twenty. A couple in the next, very next verse, Paul says, "We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God." Confess your sins. Receive his forgiveness. Enter the fellowship of his love. Stop ignoring him and putting him aside. Turn to him. Know him. Be reconciled to God. But Jesus and his cross is not just for our reconciliation with God, it's also for our reconciliation to one another. That New Testament reading we had from Ephesians 2 speaks about God through the cross making Jew and Gentile, two parties that lived apart, come together. Verse 14 speaking of the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility between these peoples. Verse 15 speaks of creating one new humanity in the place of the two. Verse 16 speaks of reconciling both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross. And if we read on in Ephesians 4.32, Paul says to Christians, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. God's business is reconciliation. Where reconciliation might not be open to us, still, Jesus said, love your enemies. Paul wrote, do not repay evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. Overcome evil with good. So after being reconciled to God, our task is to be reconciled to others as far as it is possible in this life, as much as it depends on us. And in this way, by pursuing reconciliation, we become like our Heavenly Father, like our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this may be a hard process. It may need wisdom. It may only be able to go so far. But let's pray for God's help to pursue reconciliation wherever we might need to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, reconciliation is your business and that Joseph and his brothers so long ago, with such a gulf of hurt and guilt between them, were able In their way to come to that point of reconciliation. We praise you that you have come to us in your Son Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross have reconciled us to you. And we pray, Lord, that we would be reconciled to you ourselves, we would confess our sins, that we would receive your forgiveness that we would enter and live in the fellowship of your love, and that more than being reconciled to you, we would be reconciled to one another. Where there is a difficulty in our lives, a reconciliation that needs to happen, help us to pursue it as far as we can, as much as it depends on us. Give us your wisdom, your help, your love, your courage, the opportunity and your guidance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.